Good morning. I will share with you that when I was asked to speak this morning, I said yes before my fear or perhaps my better judgment could interfere with my choice. Um, We'll see how it goes again. I wondered really how I, a white woman, could have anything of value to say about this great man, Martin Luther King Jr. Like Bob and Jack mentioned already this morning, I have certain memories of those days and times. But as an adult, I really never knew this man until I started um, as an older adult to study our history and understand our particular institution of slavery in this nation. What I found was so interesting that it was 50 years ago this month that Dr. King sat down to write a book that had been sort of percolating in his heart and mind over the previous year. The months after the success of the Voting Rights Act had been turbulent, not only for the civil rights movement, but also for the country as a whole. The war in Vietnam, the black power movement, the burgeoning feminist movement all created this sense of uncertainty that had been unknown before in our nation. The madman era had ended, and a new one was coming to be birthed, but we didn't know what it was. King was aware of all this, but as he sat down to write, what really concerned him and what was on his heart and mind were the internal conflicts within the black community. Not really a rebellion, but certainly a lot of tremendous criticism had been leveled at him and his movement. Indeed, within days of President Johnson signing the Voting Rights Act on August 5, 1965, the Watts neighborhood of L.A. exploded into fire and violence. Dr. King subsequently met with some of the young black men involved who shared with him their firm belief that they had won because they had made them, the white people of the United States, pay attention to them. Prior to Watts, King's movement had focused primarily in the South, where the Jim Crow era was alive and well. He then realized that after Watts that he knew little of what was going on in northern black communities, particularly those urban communities of color. Shortly afterwards, he committed to spending at least three days each week living primarily in the black, poor, and segregated neighborhood of Lawndale in Chicago. The experience deepened his faith and also led him to truly know what accompaniment meant. Better known as walking a mile in someone else's shoes, accompaniment really means making their shoes our shoes. It is a key component of community organizing and of socialist solidarity. As a son of the South, Dr. King grew up understanding those black shoes, but he came out of Lawndale realizing that he had little, if any, understanding of the northern black life. He admitted that the southern battlegrounds of Selma and Montgomery had made the northern neighborhoods more segregated than they had been since 1954 as a result of white flight to the suburbs. 
It is clear his movement was challenged by the Black Panthers, Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael, and the Nation of Islam to be more proactive and even challenging one of his core beliefs, that of a nonviolent movement. These outspoken critics proclaimed that black is beautiful and wanted to preserve black culture, its music, art, and poetry strictly for the black people. A nation within a nation, perhaps, or, as some explored, a return of black people to Africa. And so, in January 50 years ago, Dr. King retreated alone to set down and to question his core beliefs to see if they still had relevance in the new world that was being birthed. It was a meditation of sorts, almost a way of making sure he was still confident in these core beliefs before he could move forward. Perhaps a bit shaken by the young men he encountered in L.A., but also across the northern tier of our country, who called for black power and black pride. He was called to reflect on his core ideals of both nonviolence and integration. Just like he had a dream in 1963, the American dream has been a guiding star even before our founding of our country. Indeed, the pilgrims and others who landed on our shores early on came in quest of freedoms they hadn't known in their native lands. But along with the dream came the societal norms of European culture, including the concepts of class distinction and human inequality. In other words, slavery. Last month, I had the great good fortune to take a trip to Ireland. I stood on the docks there where hundreds of thousands of my ancestors' countrymen were forcibly deported into slavery. As I stood there, the spirit of so many of them was physically and emotionally palpable. I began to reflect that slavery has been a part of the human condition since the beginning of humanity. Indeed, it is believed that St. Patrick came to Ireland as a slave, subsequently escaped, and returned there as a missionary. In fact, I learned that Dublin had been the center of the European slave trade in the Middle Ages, and that that slave trade extended throughout Europe and into northern Africa. I also learned while I was there the thousand years of oppression that Ireland had experienced. I was there um, in December of 2016, and they were just completing their year of celebration of the 1916 uprising, the 1916 rebellion, which paved the way for the ultimate independence of the state of Ireland. We got had the opportunity to visit Kilmainham Jail, which is an old Victorian jail where many children of the famine were placed for, were incarcerated for having stolen a piece of bread during the famine and then were subsequently deported to lands unknown. Standing in those places where 14 of the 16 leaders of the 1916 uprising were summarily executed, you could feel the despair, you could feel the anger, you could feel the, the defiance. And it made me question some of my core beliefs, in particular my belief in nonviolent revolution. If slavery is a constant of human society, I began to wonder, it is also true that each society has its own code. 
the language and norms that are unspoken and inherited from one generation to another. These codes normalize our privilege while also encouraging and embedding its continuance in society. Even though we read, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Each group within America reads it a little differently. In fact, if we could make an over, we could make an overwhelming argument that none of those truths are entirely self-evident. Certainly over the history of our nation, groups such as immigrants, African slaves, women of all heritages, and even white men who didn't own their own land were not considered equal under the law, let alone our own American society's code. But what is so powerful about this code is that it is unspoken and unacknowledged. We can change our laws but the code is much more elusive and difficult to change. We, the citizens of our society, bind to, are bound to it and blind to it from birth, even while we accept it unconditionally. The indoctrination is powerful, and it never stops. Elaine Pagels, scholar and theologian, wrote in an essay, that society confers on its members whatever rights, privileges, and exemptions they may enjoy. How society values different groups is seen in the privileges it confers on them. It all depends on how our society values each of us. We've just seen in the past several years how our society has revised its its view on members of the LGBTQ group of citizens, But clearly, black lives have continued to be devalued along with those of immigrants and to a certain extent women, despite some efforts to the contrary. King, along with Pagels, outlines the history of slavery, along with the attempts to philosophize, rationalize, create science around racism, and even find references to it in various holy scriptures to justify it. King writes, the social obstetricians who presided over the birth of slavery were the aristocracy, the rich merchants, influential clergy, men from medical science, historians, and political scientists. In the book, The Half Has Never Been Told, we are shown how slavery was built into our capitalist society from the very moment of our founding. In a decade-by-decade telling, I felt I was reliving the pain of slaves while our founding, founding fathers who were American aristocracy, despite what our indoctrination may preach, wrestled and then rationalized, compromised, and ultimately collapsed in the face of the immorality and the challenge of slavery in favor of the economic needs of capitalism. King refers to this as the ambivalence of the white man towards racism, the desire to do what he knows is just, but lacking the moral courage to do it. In this, I think I disagree respectfully with Dr. King, for after centuries of indoctrinations, white Americans are steadfast in their belief of the concept of race, if not outright racism. I grew up knowing that racism was wrong, but believing that the Civil War, Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement had made great corrections to our country. There might be pockets of racism, but that was due to poor education. Hadn't we pretty much fixed America during the 60s and 70s?
clearly I was mistaken. And so it is almost natural that there should be a white backlash after each step forward against racism in our nation's history. If we are taught that race exists as part of our social code, of course white people would react negatively when they perceive any lessening of their innate privilege, which the code has taught them is correct and absolute. This reaction is not even necessarily a conscious one, but rather an emotional response to the shift in our code. King in 67 writes that the white backlash has always existed underneath and just at the surface of American society. He further states that most whites in 1967 are not emotionally prepared to close the gap between whites and blacks, but rather only to make it a bit less painful or obvious, but to retain racism and privilege. In this we find the excruciating truth about racism in America. And truth is hard to come by because we are all often deceived about ourselves. Most of us would be hard-pressed to admit that we have been indoctrinated and are, in fact, racist. In his book, Dr. King states unequivocally that racism is a white person's problem. And therefore, the black person cannot be alleviated from this race system unless the white person stands up. Black people need us, white people, to join them in the demolition of racism and racist practices. The American congenital deformity is what Dr. King calls it. He writes at length about why people need to join the movement, at times imploring others straight out challenging us and our faith. And by faith, I mean whatever moral code we choose to live by. Dr. King spends a fair amount of time discussing the Christian faith and its roots in community, inclusion, and freedom, while at the same time acknowledging that segregated churches do little to heal the breach. But what surprised me most about his writing was his discussion of American capitalism. I had known that he had become more radicalized as he, as he got older, but I was reminded in this book that the 1963 march was actually titled The March for Jobs and Freedom. I hadn't realized that his message from the beginning had an economic component. And in 1967, Dr. King writes about the connection between slavery and capitalism. Indeed, there would be no American-style capitalism without slavery and or low-wage workers. He muses about the feasibility of a socialist democratic society here in the U.S. He refers to Thomas Paine, who wrote, We have the power to begin the world over again. He envisions an America where the ever-increasing militarism is reduced and there is funding to assist the least of us. We see all of this in our economy and country today, where burgeoning inequality continues to destroy our middle class and led in no small part to the election results. Where our military budget consumes 57% of our national budget, and yet we are told there is no funding for education, health care, or other programs to assist the needy. More states pass right-to-work laws, which only serve to eliminate labor unions, which might help increase wages and benefits. Yes, we are still governed by an aristocracy, albeit a capitalist version of aristocracy, 
where our Congress is made up of millionaires and the incoming cabinet is controlled by billionaires. Who is walking in our shoes on Capitol Hill? Dr. King's solution is for us, white liberals and black activists, to come together, to join to build the America we believe in and dream of. He believes that in a multiracial society, no one group can go it alone. We all need each other. We all rise or fall together. A couple of years ago, after Ferguson erupted, some pundits and media types were quite dismissive of the Black Lives Matter movement. They asked, where was the leadership? Who was the next Martin Luther King Jr.? King himself never even alludes to the need for a celebrity leader in the struggle ahead. He speaks only of unity and community, of accompaniment and soulful empathy for one another. But how do we proceed? How do we create, create the unity and community? Last fall, a group of us at UUCF came together to read through the Movement for Black Lives Platter platform. There were times when I almost wept at my own ignorance of the reality of the day-to-day -day lives of many black people and still the inclusivity of the platform. Even after all our societal code as well as our outright laws have what they have done to devalue and persecute people of color, to cage them in prisons, to denigrate them as crack addicts and welfare queens, even while we steal their creative souls by co-opting their music and art and poetry, black people still invite us, white people, to participate. As I've said before, our salvation is collective. So while we are invited to join, we are specifically asked not to lead. Whites are invited to support, to have other Others rewrite the code. We are asked to serve, to follow, and to accompany, to make all our shoes our own. This is our challenge then, to follow but not lead, to listen and not speak, to allow those who have struggled their chance to lead. By the way, I realize I've never mentioned the book that I was talking about, but Martin Luther King Jr. The title is Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, published in 1967. He was prophetic in our need for his guidance these 50 years on. Thank you.